0: Friends, it's our privilege this morning to look into God's word again, and we are going to continue our studies in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Church of God at Corinth. He wrote an earlier letter known to us as 1 Corinthians, about 12 months previously. And in that letter, he addressed a number of issues and answered several questions being asked of him but he felt it appropriate to write a further letter to the friends in the church of God at Corinth, not least because some false teachers were questioning his authority and his integrity as an apostle and as a preacher of the word. This letter, is being, it's been said of it, it's perhaps the most personal of Paul's letters in the New Testament, Uh, but also it's full of divine truths, not least what is set before us this morning, which in simple terms is a comparison and a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we're looking at some deep things this morning, and you need to pray for the preacher as he stands here before you and tries to expound the Scriptures. But first let's backtrack to our earlier study toward the end of 2 Corinthians Chapter Two, uh, the Apostle writes there in terms of himself and all believers: we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in him that are, in them that are saved and in them that perish. He's saying there that we are a fragrance or we are an aroma unto God because we represent Christ. And as he writes to these friends in Corinth at verse two, he writes of them, Ye are our epistle, you are our letter, written in our hearts, and known and read of all men. So they were letters of Christ. The apostle needed no other commendation. His commendation was in these dear friends who had been pagans, who had been heard the gospel of Christ, who had been saved by that gospel and were now members of God's family, the fellowship of the Lord's people. And there were these letters of Christ for all to read and see. Verse 5, the apostle writes here, sensing the tremendous responsibility that was placed upon him as an apostle and as a preacher, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Our sufficiency is of God. Is That's not true today for ourselves, friends. As a preacher, as a Christian person, in any gospel work that we may be engaged in, we feel our inability and our weakness, our limitations to forward that particular role or that work. And yet surely we can say with the Apostle, but our sufficiency is from God. As he says in Elsewhere, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this morning in our meditations, we are thinking of from glory to glory. Verse 18 is really my text. Let's read that verse again. It's a wonderful verse. It's so comprehensive. But we all with open face, beholding us in the glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It may be helpful to you if I just give you a little help in the understanding of two words that are in this uh, Scripture quite a number of times. not suggesting, by the way, that you're illiterate or anything of that nature. I'm not seeking to give you an English lesson. But just for our help together to in the context these words in this context and those two words are glory and glorious the noun glory means really an estimate or an opinion of another person a person's worth or to give them honor or reverence or worship that's the noun glory The word glorious appears several times through these verses, the related word, the adjective, of course. And in this context, it means splendid, magnificent, excellent, resplendent. Those kind of words, glory and glorious. So we read at verse 7. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious... "...was excellent, was splendid, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away?" The apostle throughout is making a comparison and he's also contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. And he describes the Old Covenant here as the ministration of death. And down in verse 9, he describes the Old Covenant, the ministration of condemnation. The Old Covenant, of course, was given by God. It was a revelation of God to his ancient church, the children of Israel. But in terms of the Old Covenant it set out before people their duty to God and that they were to keep the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And of course, they quickly discovered that that was impossible. However hard they tried to keep the law, they always fell short of God's standard and therefore they became lawbreakers in God's sight. They became sinners because they could not keep the law, the ministration of death, the ministration of condemnation, because, of course, the outflow of that was, of breaking the law, that this meant spiritual death and ultimately eternal death. We see here a contrast between the law and the gospel. This is what it's really all about, in my view, this passage. Some commentators to describe these verses as some of the most difficult to interpret in the whole of the New Testament. That's why I asked for your extra prayer a few moments ago. So we see there that in the days of Israel, the law was glorious. This ministration of death, this ministration of condemnation, and yet it is described as being glorious. Because as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 14, the law is holy, the law is just, the law is good. So the law was glorious in those Old Testament days. Verse 8, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Here comes the contrast. He's speaking about the gospel now. He's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's asking a question How shall not this work, this ministration of the Spirit, be rather glorious? And so, verse 9 again the ministration of condemnation be glory. He is a much more, halfway through the verse. Much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. This ministration of righteousness, this is that righteousness that comes, of course, through Jesus Christ. And I just remind you of some of Paul's words about this from his own experience in Philippians chapter 3, speaking of himself, and be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So here we're thinking about that righteousness. We look to Christ in his perfect righteousness as he laid down his life for us upon Calvary's tree. And then we realize that in that mysterious way, which we must take by faith, that his righteousness has been imputed to us. Mere sinners has been transferred to us so that now we may be described as righteous in Christ. And this is the glory of the gospel, of course, because we're thinking here about justification by faith. And we're only justified by faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness being imputed to us. Verse 10, for even that which was made glorious... Had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, and we've agreed that the old covenant was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. So the Apostle Paul here is, as it were, ascending steps and gradually going higher and higher. So verse, at the end of verse 7, referring to the old covenant, the glory that was to be done away. At the end of verse 8, the spirit, the ministration of the spirit is rather glorious. But at the end of verse 9, this new righteousness, this new covenant will exceed in glory. And verse 10, as we've just read, this glory that excels, that surpasses, that extends way beyond the experience of the Old Testament church and those who were members of that Old Covenant. (coughs) Just a simple illustration. It's rather like the moon shining at night and it's giving forth great light. And then as the sun begins to rise in the early morning, then the, the light of the moon begins to gradually fade away. And that's a little picture of the Old Covenant which was, in God's purposes and in God's mind, always going to be replaced or overtaken by or perfected by the new covenant, which, of course, is in Christ. So we've established that the law is holy and just and good. So what went wrong then? Well, we know that. We've already mentioned that, of course, because the people's hearts were evil And their deeds were evil, and so they fell short of God's standard. And before we move forward any further, let's just seal it in our minds, friends, in terms of the old covenant. Because Holy Scripture itself, the inspired word of God, describes the old covenant as being glorious. So do keep that point in your mind. Many years ago, our younger daughter, I think she was about four years of age, and she went up into the bathroom and she looked into the bathroom mirror and we heard her exclaim as she looked into this mirror, that's glorious! I think she'd just recently been listening to a sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and it had affected her deeply. So we're looking further into this now. We're seeing now at verse 12 seeing that we have such hope writes the apostle we use great plainness of speech or boldness of speech in other words now when he preaches the gospel it is an open message it is a message that is to be understood by all people there's nothing secretive about it there's nothing that's covered there isn't a kind of veil over it except, of course, for those who are still experiencing spiritual blindness. But the gospel is an open message to be widely and publicly proclaimed. And so the the apostle, as it were, is very bold, is very plain in the use of his speech. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, you may remember, speaking of the false teachers, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. There he is comparing himself with the false teachers who were hiding things from the people, who were twisting the truth of God, but not so the apostle. Verse 13, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfast look to the end of that which is abolished. We read earlier the narrative in, uh, in Exodus chapter 34 about Moses as he uh, descended the mount of God carrying the two tables of testimony. And the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end. The word end in this context and in the original can mean two things. End can mean goal or end can mean termination. And I tend to think it means termination in this context they could not look to the termination of that which is abolished the old testament covenant came with a use by date and that use by date was closed down at the incarnation of christ when the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us from the birth of christ his life his cross and resurrection and ascension, then he was going to establish the new covenant. The new covenant. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He has sealed that new covenant by his precious blood. Verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for to this they remain of the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ? Their minds were blinded. The word blinded here is to think of a large stone and then think of a small stone which has broken away from the large stone. And the meaning then becomes callous or insensible. So their minds were callous or insensible. For until this day remaineth the same veil, rather clumsily expressed in our Orthodox version, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. You see, why could they not look at the unveiled face of Moses? Because of the hardness of their heart because of their sin and disobedience. Even that recent sin of making and worshipping the golden calf and making into it an idol in contradiction to the commands of God. And so these people, at least some of them or many of them, their minds were calloused and insensible. And even when the Old Testament was read as it did It was read later years in the synagogue, every Sabbath day. In the reading of the Old Testament, then that veil was still upon them. We read there at verse 15, even until this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. When Moses is read, that's shorthand for the Pentateuch, for the first five books ...of the Bible, known as the books of Moses. So when the books of Moses were read in the synagogue, as they were... uh, ...week by week on the Sabbath day... ...this veil remained upon their hearts. In other words, they had no understanding. They could not believe. They were still in darkness. They They were exposed to the light... ...but they were not enjoying the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ... So therefore, verse 16, nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I don't usually comment on our good old version, the authorized version, but I think this is rather awkward here. Nevertheless, when it, sounds very impersonal to me, when it shall be taken, turned to the Lord, it means when the Jews, when they, when the old testament church when the jewish people turn to the lord and believe on the lord jesus christ but we do not need to make it exclusively for the jews because we know that in the new covenant arrangement the gospel is proclaimed to jew and gentile so we can say of this verse here nevertheless when any person who is in unbelief who is callous and insensible, whose mind is blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when any such person turns to the Lord, when any such person repents, when they turn away from sin, and when they turn to Christ and seek to love him and follow him. Then the veil shall be taken away, that obstacle, that what was preventing understanding and grasping the truth of God's word, then and only then, the veil will be removed. Again, another simple illustration for you. Think of a a marriage ceremony, and the bride and groom are are standing there at the front of the church, in front of the minister, And the bride is wearing her veil. And the ceremony goes forward and it reaches a certain moment in the ceremony when quite often the bride removes her veil. And the groom can see his bride, his wife now, in all her beauty and her glory. Because the veil has been removed from her face. And this is what happens at every conversion to faith, for yourself, for myself, for countless other people, that that veil is removed. And now we can see Christ. And we can see Christ in all his glory and his majesty and his power and his excellences. Now, verse 17, the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. Because... Before Christ, we are enslaved. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to following the fashions, the passing fashions of this world. We're just for ourselves. We're selfish. We've no thought of God or Christ or eternal realities. And although we consider ourselves to be free if we'd been asked, in actual fact, according to God's word, we are slaves. But by the power of the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel and the mighty work of God's Holy Spirit, we are granted our freedom from sin and from slavery. And it is down to the work and person of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 18, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. But we all, the Apostle counts in himself and his co-laborers. He counts in all the saints of God who were part of that church of God in the city of Corinth. He counts in now Every believer in Christ Jesus. But we all with open face beholding. That word beholding, it means to literally stand still. And to gaze. And to stare for a few moments. And to, as it were, absorb into our hearts and into our minds what we see set before us. And what do we see set before us? With this open face we are beholding as in a mirror, or a glass, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. If you stand in front of a mirror, I'm sure from time to time you do stand in front of a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. You see an image of yourself. And as believers, friends, we are called with open face to stare, to gaze, to behold in this mirror... And what do we see? We see the glory of the Lord. We see Christ in all his glory. All his wonderful glory. We see now that the the types and the shadows and the figures and the illustrations in the Old Testament, especially in the books of Moses but elsewhere also, we see that all those have been abolished. That all those have been overtaken as it were. We see now the gospel of Jesus Christ and we see Christ in all his glory. We see him in his glory because we have come to know him as the eternal son of God, the second person of the blessed eternal Godhead. We see him all in in his glory because we can now see and in some measure at least Experience all his wonderful attributes and perfections as we read about them in Scripture. We see his glory as we reflect on that first miracle at Cana, at that wedding, at that marriage of Cana. And it says at the end of that narrative, when Christ turned water into wine, that he manifested his glory. We see him in John chapter 11 at the raising of Lazarus, one of his good friends from the village of Bethany. And even before that miracle took place, Christ said to his disciples that this is for the glory of God. That the glory of the Lord might be made known in those miracles, the nature miracles, the healing miracles. We see Christ in his glory in his incarnation, when the word became flesh, in his life and his preaching and teaching. We see Christ in his glory at the cross. From John chapter 12, we read Christ says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify my name. So when you look at the cross, and when believers look at the cross, they see a man who was a failure because he died upon a Roman gibbet. But no, when a Christian looks at the cross, we see the glory of the Lord shining forth in all its brilliance, in its many-sided colors, as it were, and features. This was the moment in history, when if nowhere else we can appreciate the glory of the Lord, when the eternal Son of God suffered and died for sinners and made atonement for sin, we see the glory of the Lord around us in creation, we see the glory of the Lord in the church when we look at one another and we read these letters of Christ. As we read one another, we see the glory of the Lord in the work of the gospel. Beholding us in the glass, in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, we're changed. Substantially changed. Eternally changed. Perfectly changed. The word is metamorphosis. It's a kind of thought of a caterpillar changing into a beautiful butterfly. And so we are changed or we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We read in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 in that creation week we read that God created man in his own image and yet we know full well that things went badly wrong because of the fall. We know the entry of sin and disobedience. But man in the first place, God in the first place created man in his own image. And so we are being changed from glory to glory into that same image. It's the work of progressive sanctification as the theologians describe it. Progressive sanctification I sense that the apostle may have in mind words from Psalm 84, verse 7, where the psalmist writes of progressing, of moving forward, of going from strength to strength. And so, how is this work of sanctification, how is it revealed or uncovered in our own experience? Well, of course, in many ways, I can only be brief now, but. To start with, the fruit of the Spirit, as we read of it in Galatians there. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We are being changed, we are being transformed into the same image from glory unto glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now this progressive sanctification as we May well testify, can on occasions be rather painful, as God is dealing with us at a very fundamental level, as He's dealing with our sins and iniquities, as He's seen to reshape us and help us to advance in the ways of holiness and of righteousness. And this is done through the Word and through the Spirit. Through reading the word, being familiar with the word, the exhortations and the comforts and the encouragements of the word. And through the ongoing work, day by day, moment by moment, of that transformative work of the power of the Holy Spirit of God in us. Because we are increasingly to be more like Christ. We are called to become Christ-like We'll never achieve that, of course, in this life, only in heaven. But nevertheless, the Lord, out of his grace and kindness to us, is seeking to do that. Think of a camera and looking through the lens of a camera. And if you, look at a, if you pick up a camera and you look through the lens and you look at me, for instance, you will see, you'll notice that I'm out of focus. I'm out of focus because I'm not perfect. Perfect. Because that work of sanctification has not yet been completed in me. And so I'm still out of focus. I'm blurred, as it were, around the edges, if we can express it that way. And why? Because of our first parents. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, and what is known as the fall. And because we have taken on, we have inherited their sin. And because we too are sinful, fallen creatures. And yet we are called to increasingly reflect him. be changed into the same image from glory to glory. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed into the image of his son. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. We're called to be conformed to the image of Christ, the eternal Son of God, by the Word and by the Spirit. And so now you see, as we pick up a camera and we look at a brother or sister in Christ, we see that with God's help and grace, that person who was so much far out of focus is now slowly and gradually being refocused by God The Holy Spirit. And so we read here at verse 18. Friends, put yourself in this verse. This is part of your everyday experience. This is part of God's hand upon your life at this present time. Whether you're struggling with trials of faith, whether you are struggling with other matters carrying burdens which are heavy for you to carry whatever your present mood or circumstance, put yourself in these words as I read them for the final time now. But we all, with open face, beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord, are changed or transformed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I just close by reading some words from John chapter 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And we have that future hope and that future prospect that in heaven we too shall be given glorified bodies and then we shall see him as he is amen